Hello, everyone. My name is Peter. And my name is Gabriel. And welcome to What's Indie News, episode five. We are talking about SDG4, uh, the education uh, standard development goal or sustainable development goal. And uh, once again, we'll be talking about refugee education. Uh, if you haven't caught up on the previous two episodes on the topic, I would recommend listening to those before you listen to this one. And today we actually have our very first guest, and we're going to be conducting sort of an interview style. Right. So this is Andrea. Um, Andrea, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? My name's Andrea. I'm a fellow Peace Corps volunteer with Gabe and Peter here. Um, so my experience with refugees is I wrote my senior thesis in college um, about refugee integration programs in the United States and Germany. And I've also had some uh, experiences, uh, both short and long duration, working with various refugee integration programs in Europe. So you said that you worked um, in integration for refugees. Oh, well, you, you did your thesis sort of more of an academic sense and you have some practical field work. So for my thesis, I was looking specifically at how um, like the legalese of government programs and the interactions that the government programs promote, how they can either foster or hurt integration um, between like host country nationals and the refugees. All right, cool. Um, so I'm trying to decide which way I want to take this now. Uh, it's our first interview, so things are a little bit silly, but um, I guess let's jump into um, why is integration important? So a, a lot of refugees sort of live on the outsides of, uh, or sort of live on the fringe of society and specialized refugee camps. Um, and general consensus is that's not necessarily the best way to handle things. but so why is integration important and why should we be examining the, the current systems for refugees? So there, in my opinion, there are a couple reasons integration is important. Um, the first would be that the average stay in a refugee camp, I don't remember the exact statistic, but it's over 20 years. Like when somebody, somebody leaves home as a refugee, you know, the likelihood of them going back within one generation is like incredibly low. So they're going to be living in another culture. And so integration is important in the sense of you don't want to raise the entire next generation on the fringe of a society that doesn't promote any kind of like friendly interaction between people. Also, integration is important because, you know, refugees are not herders living in huts with no electricity and no skills, you know, they're people, they're doctors, they're lawyers, they have things to contribute to society. And uh, if you don't find a way to incorporate them into the new home that they're living in, then it's just a, a waste of people. I, I think the podcast is done. I think that's all we needed. That was a really good answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I guess sort of moving forward, uh, we, we've been talking about education uh, in this this podcast for the past couple episodes. Now, what do you think the role of education is on integration? Um, and how can we use education to help foster that integration? I think the, the first step of integration is establishing 
a base language. So whether that be people in the host country that can communicate effectively with refugees or if they learn the language of where they're living. So for example, uh, one of the organizations I worked with uh, when I was living in Salzburg, Austria, was Caritas, which is kind of like um, a European equivalent to the Red Cross. And in Salzburg, the city I was living in, they are responsible for housing um, refugees while their asylum paperwork goes through and they're denied or approved to become residents of Austria. And so there were about six houses in the city. And so while the uh, asylum seekers, not yet refugees, were living in that, in that housing, they had the opportunity to pursue German language courses for free. They could get up to the, if they could pass the B2 level, it could definitely help with their asylum process. For those not familiar with European language standards, A1 is like basic, you can barely communicate. A2 is, I think, independent um, introductory learner. B1 is like intermediate. And that B2 is usually, if you get the certificate, the point at which you are able to work in the language. And then C1 is you know more advanced and C2 as a native speaker. So I think they were able to pursue free language courses up through B2. And so that is a the first step of education, I think. Yeah, that's that's a good point. A lot of these people are coming from places where they don't share a language or even sometimes if they share a language, they speak with an accent that might be isolating. Oh, so I have a follow-up question here. So Andrea, these free language courses do you did you feel that they were generally successful so there was a wide variety of types of people for lack of a better word living in these asylum houses you had families with young children and then you had you know some singles like especially young single men and i think for those who were dedicated to going to their course and making sure they got there and the austrian government did a lot to help them get there you know they got a stipend for the train so they could get to their class and so if they if they went, I think it was helping because it just allows them to better communicate throughout their asylum procedures of like paperwork. You know, if they can better represent themselves, then that is promoting, you know, the ability to integrate. It sounds like you had a lot of experience with a very diverse and like wide ranging set of refugees or asylum seekers mm-hmm. and um so you are probably in a pretty good place to answer this next question which is um what was the level of education that a lot of these refugees uh you encountered had and i don't just mean necessarily um formal education but also like did you find that you encountered a lot of people with informal training and uh, s- skills that would be adaptable to the the society that they find themselves living in? Yeah, so I mean, just like any diverse group of people, th- the skills were completely across the board. So there was a couple, a couple young men who were probably housing contractors would be like the closest equivalent job. You know, they had experience with construction and painting. And so that was more of a skilled trade. So I don't know what in terms of like formal high school or secondary education they had, but they definitely knew how to build houses. That was their skill. Remember, but there were also like a couple, there was a couple I met in Berlin um, when I was conducting more of like anthropo- anthropological research for my thesis. And they were lawyers, both of them. 
educated wow. lawyers. They had been working in Syria and they had decided that they wanted to go to Berlin because they were from Damascus, the capital city. And they wanted to live in another capital city because they thought the atmosphere would be familiar to them. So, I mean, you just, you have all ends of the spectrum. And then you also have some people who, you know, really probably don't have a whole lot of formal education. I remember working with one woman in one of the Caritas houses. She was probably over 50 and she had never learned to read. So she couldn't really go to the German classes until she could learn the alphabet. And so it was, you know, you have the full, you have the full spectrum of like highly skilled to specialized trade to very minimally educated. Yeah, and I suppose that's that's something that's critical to the integration too, is um, a lot of places, particularly a lot of places where refugees are coming from, reading might not necessarily be a priority, especially to, to young women right to to girls and young women uh they they might not be given priority on how to read so they might be coming into these situations entirely illiterate so uh <laughs> this this is an interesting question this is one that i'm i'm really interested to hear your your thoughts on um because people people have a way of continuing continually surprising you and perhaps like good and bad ways, they're always surprising. Uh, so what was one thing that really surprised you working with refugees, either the people or like the situations or just something that you found like the general listener to the show might not necessarily know about working with refugees? Well, it's not, it's not necessarily a happy thing, but I want to share. Um, but I think one of the most surprising things to me was the level of normalized trauma, mm. especially in children. You you would be teaching teaching English, and you know you're teaching parts of the body. So this this was more with. Uh, I also worked with an um, NGO called Movement on the Ground on the island of Lesbos in Greece, and so there you have more people who you know just came over on life rafts. You know they crossed from Turkey, so more of the fresh off the boat for lack of better terminology um and so you'd be teaching you know basic english you know parts of the body and you know then the little boy would say oh my brother point to his arm and like make up a, a blowing up sound and so like the the amount of how much they want to tell you about what has happened to them but sometimes don't have the ability to and so i think like the the mental mental health that plays probably a huge factor in the ability of these people to move forward with their lives and seek education is probably one of the most hidden or not surface level considerations for working with refugees. Yeah, trauma sensitive education is is something that's that's really quite new even even in America and in, in other sort of uh, well developed countries with well developed education systems traumatize. Or tra um, trauma sensitive education is is something that's that's we're finding is playing a more and more important role in education because how are you supposed to meet their educational needs if they're still dealing with the idea that maybe their physical needs or their their um, emotional needs are not necessarily being met from past traumas working in a refugee camp was like you know, we all learn, you take a basic psych class and you get told about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? And you're all kind of like, what is this? You know, we all have water. 
And then you go and you work in a refugee camp. And for the first time I was like, oh, okay, this is why someone invented this theory. Like this is why this exists in psychology. Yeah, and it's it's kind of nice because that that hierarchy of needs is, is resurfacing in education a lot, um, particularly in low income school districts where, you know, maybe the children haven't had breakfast and they are coming to school hungry. And how do you approach that as an educator? And so it's it's nice to see that sort of taking hold in a wider a wider setting. Yeah. Or like, I mean, also with Maslow's hierarchy, like you can't when you're working with children who come from like trauma backgrounds, you you can't get angry about little things like theft. You know, like they may have been living in a situation where like they didn't have food. And so, you know, like they're they're like hoarding instincts have kicked in and like you can't until you can overcome that. It's hard to like teach English. So I've talked about this before. Like I've mentioned this before. Um, there's a, a pedagogist um, called Paulo Freire, and he was a Brazilian educator, philosopher, and he's been, uh, he was active mid-century, born 1921, died 1997, and he came from Brazil, and he had a very poor background in Brazil. And uh, one of the things that he advocated for very heavily um, in education was having a uh, an education system that's sensitive to the background of the people that it's educating. And he wrote this work called um, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, which has been a very influential work. And so one of one of these uh, hard-hitting quotes that he has is, um, I didn't understand anything because of my hunger. I wasn't dumb. I wasn't, it wasn't lack of interest. My social condition didn't allow me to have an education. And so I think that bringing this up, you know, like these, um, the background of these refugees like you can't have an education, uh, an integration attempt at that ignores that background. You you have to be sensitive to that hierarchy of needs. You have to be sensitive to the normalized trauma. All of these things. I mean, to kind of play devil's advocate with myself, though, you also there are people who fled but don't have those traumatic experiences, and at the same time, you have to find a way to accommodate their rate of progress with someone else. I think that was the biggest, the biggest problem I, like when I was working in Greece was just the, like the dichotomy of skill in a classroom, you know, <laughs> like, how do you, how do you teach day one English to somebody who's also been there for six months and can, can, can speak in full sentences. So like having multiple tracks simultaneously, like that's difficult for a lot of NGOs, you know, who have one classroom. You know, how do you evaluate students? How do you place them in a class? How do you, how do you deal with the constant flux and moving of people? I think that's one of the biggest challenges for the education, especially done by NGOs in informal settings. Yeah, and that's that's a area of education that's sort of been, well, being uh, very heavily researched is is multi level classrooms, and it's. There's no great way to handle a multi-level classroom, especially when you look at the class sizes a lot of refugee-heavy school systems are dealing with. And, you know, sometimes the solution is to break up the, the students into two different classes. But then you have a situation like in Jordan where teachers are working uh, double shifts to, to cover all of the classes. And, uh, you know, sometimes you can have, if it's only one or two students, you can have like a teacher's helper, but then the the student who's being the helper isn't really getting anything from the class. 
And so there's no real great solution for those those problems. And um, I guess that segues into our next topic that we wanted to talk with you about is what should we be doing for uh, refugee education? What what sort of options are available? And I did I did some research so to sort of guide the conversation a little bit from the the giant general looming question of like how do we solve a system that's clearly broken into something that's more like approachable. And so it sort of boils down into a few different categories of solutions. Uh, so you can, there's been a lot of high tech solutions um, proposed, including using like cell phones to text um, homework assignments to people or uh, digital resource libraries in refugee centers in, in Jordan. Uh, and sort of these high tech solutions to these 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 education problems. Uh, there's another one that's general certification, uh, sort of across countries, across global uh, certification routes for people with both formal and informal educations. So if you have like someone who is a mechanic, they would be able to take a test, even if they've never taken a class as a mechanic, if they still pass the test then they can still find work as a mechanic. Can I interrupt? Yes. Okay, so um, our original question here is what can we be doing, right? Yeah, yeah. So I think uh, it's important to specify here who is we in this situation. There's we, um, like the any of our listeners who may not have any background, any contact even with refugee populations. There's we... Um, us three who are educators working in the developing world right now. And there's the, the more general we, like what should we, the world be doing? So who, who are we talking about right now? Who, who is we? Well, I guess that's one of the things that we have to address with each of the solutions because uh, like a certification test is not something that any of us can do. Any of the three of us can do. And it's not something that the general, listener would be able to do, but it is something that governments generally and uh, world leaders would be able to implement on a wider scale. I actually think trying to break down the distinction of we is kind of a slippery slope, because when you say we, you're simultaneously talking about the world, the government, and you at the same time. Because if you want to see the change in your government, you, the individual, can lobby your government. Yeah, that's a good point. And then the government can share its best practices with the international community. And that's kind of an idealist model. But to break down the we doesn't, doesn't always necessarily help. I think that's a fair point. And that was actually something that I was um, had as an ulterior motive <laughs> in asking that question. Because I think it's useful to break down that we, but then also to construct like what you can do, even if you don't fit into that specific we, like if you are, you know, like if you work at a medical office back in the States in a well-to-do area, like that is your we, but then also you can work, you can advocate, you can lobby, you can, you can still care about these issues in that same way. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I think so. Did you have more samples you wanted to tell me about or did you want my reaction? Oh, for the solutions? Yeah. yeah, there's a there's a couple more on the list, and it sort of rounds out with um, general training where you take uh, teachers who are already well-versed in trauma-sensitive uh, education 
and you send them to do teacher training in areas where there are heavy refugee concentrations. And uh, you start working with the educators there on uh, best practices for oversized classrooms, best practices for trauma-related uh, education, and any of the other problems that you might encounter in a refugee-heavy education system. And I guess the last one is funding. And um, it's just sort of, we should open up the resources to have more educators available and open up the resources for more grants for teachers to go and uh, learn how to deal with the problems that they're facing in their home countries and, and things along that line. And so those are the sort of major solutions that I was seeing when I was doing my research so many months ago. Um, so what do we think might be the most prudent action that we can take now? And what should we be working towards to try and eliminate the gaps uh, in, ed <laughs> in refugee education? I'm not super well, ironically, well-educated on the options for refugee education. But my gut reaction is that a lot of the processes that involve refugees, so basically all of those solutions that you just listed don't take into account just providing extra time like if you have an oversized classroom you know maybe you just don't expect that kid to pass ninth grade in one year you know mm -hmm. and so I'm, i kind of agree with the approach austria has taken in the sense of like you can't come into our classroom until you get, I don't know if it's the B1 or the B2 language certificate. And so, you know, that might add a year and a half to somebody's ability to further educate themselves. But then when they do get into that classroom, they can meaningfully contribute and be at the same pace as, you know, the Germans or other foreign nationals or Austrians in that classroom. And so I think a lot of governments don't add time you know, we live in such a world where like time is valuable, but also, you know, successful integration is valuable. And so my my thing is just allowing for more time for all of those processes to happen. Yeah. And I guess that was one of the categories that I should have probably added on this list is uh, there are a few governments that are establishing the similar sort of integration classes where they teach you language, they teach you culture, they teach you how to basically function in the society. Um, I, I took one of these classes in Korea where they taught us the language, how to go to a bank and set up a bank account and just general functionality in the culture that you're in. And um, the thing with that though is I feel as though those programs are more suited for uh, areas with already prominent structured education systems. Whereas I don't know if they would necessarily be as successful in somewhere like the Congo uh, or um, yeah, like the DRC where, where the, the education system's less formalized, they were already struggling with an overburdened uh, school system and they have something like one textbook for every four students where you do need to um, worry about their integration, but it's it's something more than that when it's a, a fledgling education system. I don't, I don't know if any of that made sense. <laughs> no, it does. Because, I mean, the question you asked me was kind of, what's the blanket solution 
for this problem. I, I guess I, there true. isn't one. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose that was a poorly worded question. <laughs> But it raised a good point in that we often think about the refugee populations in in uh, in these well-off countries, like in in Germany, in the United States, in Europe, wherever. Um, but we talked about in previous podcasts that the areas that have the most refugees are the Congo and and Turkey and places like that, all in between. So there are a lot of different. There are a lot of different contexts for educate. <laughs> I did it too. <laughs> for refugee education. It's amazing how your language decays when you're recording a podcast. <laughs> you're like super articulate and then it just like falls apart. Yeah, and that's why I I like I really like the solutions that are proposed that are like providing more training for teachers and these general skills that they might not have, where they can take them back and apply them to their country-specific situations. Who hosts those kind of trainings? There's actually a, quite a few uh, universities that are already hosting those sorts of trainings. I know Columbia runs a program for it. There's a, there's a few other universities that are sort of spearheading it. And then there's also technical trainings from the private uh, sector on how to use like computers in the classroom to try and improve uh, learning results, which is obviously more beneficial for the areas that have that sort of infrastructure. So is that something that is exclusively run by universities or is that something that the individual with interest can become involved in? Um, I'm sure it's something that the individual with interest could become involved in. I'm sure there's a lot of NGOs that are currently working in that sector as well. Um, just when I was doing my research, I came across a lot of articles about universities doing it. So that's sort of what I, I ended up reading a lot about. Makes sense. Does anyone else have any thoughts about what might not be a, a good solution or like what they would like to see moving forward? Uh, Andrea has already talked about this and I've already talked about this. Gabe, what, what are your thoughts? Well, I don't think that I can really add anything. All I can really do is reiterate uh the there are no blanket solutions across the board and it's important to take into account the the diversity of refugee populations as well as the the backgrounds of those refugees having a sensitive education system having an education system that is focused on quality of education and not just pushing them through a system. Um, all of these things are, are important and will help in the long run to uh, better serve refugee populations. And I mean, really, there isn't any one solution. And it's good that there are a lot of people working in a lot of different sectors to, uh, to improve this issue. Yeah, I guess, I guess the certification is probably like the sort of certification solution is probably the closest to a global solution. It doesn't really help younger people, but I think that is something to watch is the certification route because, you know, there's a lot of online courses that you can take today that provide a lot of really good information, but there's no end result to it. There's no like walk away with a, a diploma or a degree. Uh, but if you could, if, if you could use like, um, 
the European Union already has a standardized sort of system for education in, in most of the European Union states. So it would be rather simple to agree upon a series of tests for different subjects and say, hey, if you acquired the skills to pass this content for math, we're going to say that you are the equivalent of a grade 10 math student or something along those lines. And so I, I think that's a that would be a good step forward. So I think that would be an interesting uh, place to watch moving forward into like the 10 and 20 year plan. Hopefully this is less of a problem in 10 and 20 years, but I think that would be the closest thing we could find to a global solution. Yeah, I think I also have a lot of hope for the universal like classification and universal degrees. But then I also, you know, watch trade agreements between the European Union and the U.S. where they can't agree on, you know, what what France gets in a fight with the U.S. about what counts as cheese, you know, in, 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 in So, like, you know, it sounds really nice, but then, you know, like, is, I mean, first you have to answer the question, like, is an American engineer and a German engineer the same? I don't know. Uh. And I suppose the one thing that gives me a little bit more hope uh, in this specific context is the fact that there are already uh, universal universal agreements for recognizing certain content and curriculum. For example, Asia's got a set of universities where if you study in most Asian uh, countries, they are willing to accept it at a certain level and the, the signatories to their agreement. Um, Europe has one as well. Uh, Americas don't have one, which is the current bane of my existence right now, because my Canadian degree is not necessarily accepted in in everywhere. There, there are like Canada has trouble selling its cheese too, and like <laughs> the, the, it's like a really weird problem. But I think the structure for this is there more than it is for uh, trade agreements where you're starting from scratch. Like there's already a system in place to acknowledge education received in different countries. And I think that is the basis of this already puts you a step forward over what we would see in a trade agreement. That's true. It's a good argument. So I guess that is episode five, uh, Refugee Education. And that wraps up our three-part series on um, sustainable development goal number four in education, uh, specifically refugee education. Well, thanks for having me today. I enjoyed coming on your podcast. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Uh, it's been a blast. And uh, hopefully we can have you back sometime again. Sure, anytime. It was really good at having someone a little bit closer to the issue than me and Peter have been. So big thanks again. And once again, you can follow us on Twitter, where I will be sharing relevant articles and uplifting news. You can find us on Facebook. Uh, please send your suggestions on things that you want us to cover. Uh, and we will do the research for you and explain um, sort of the, the current and pressing trends of today.